0: From the newsroom of The Washington Post.
1: It's Robert Samuels from The Washington Post.
2: Host, this is Sarah Kaplan.
0: Hi, this is Elahi Azadi with The Washington Post. Hey. This is Post Reports. I'm Nicole Ellis. It's Wednesday, August 12th. Today, Biden's historic choice of Kamala Harris and what it means for November. Hitting pause on college football... And a wedding interrupted in Beirut.
3: Hi, 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 hi. Sorry to keep you. That's
4: all right. You ready to go to work? Oh
3: my God. I'm so ready to go to work. I was raised to take action. After a
2: very lengthy process, Joe Biden announced the name of his vice presidential pick. Annie Linsky is a national politics reporter for The Post. Selecting Kamala Harris, who would be an, a number of firsts. She would be the first Black woman, and also first Indian American woman, to be the vice presidential nominee of a major party.
3: To take action.
4: First of all, is the answer yes?
3: The answer is absolutely yes, Joe, <laughs> and I am ready to work. I am ready to do this with you, for you. I, I just, I'm just deeply honored, and I'm very excited.
0: So what do we know about Kamala Harris? Like how long has she been a senator and what are the other kind of highlights of her career in politics?
2: Kamala Harris is, you know, a fascinating figure in the Democratic Party. She rose up through California politics. She was a a prosecutor there, elected statewide as attorney general, then went on to become the state's first black um, U.S. senator. And then, you know, in 2019, she launched a presidential bid which was met with extraordinary enthusiasm. (laughs) You had somewhere in the order of 20,000 people in Oakland coming to see her when she first um, announced her presidential bid. Really one of the biggest rallies of for any candidate of the entire Democratic primary season was her her kickoff. One of the the chapters of her history that she talks about the most is as attorney general, she was part of a group of attorney generals that was being quite aggressive at looking at banks and looking at financial institutions leading up to the 2008 financial crisis.
3: For the people meant fighting for middle class families who had been defrauded by banks and were losing their homes by the millions in the Great Recession.
2: And this is how she got to know Bo Biden, a Joe Biden son.
3: So we went after the five biggest banks in the United States. We won.
2: That's you know how Kamala Harris began to get to know Joe Biden is is through his son, and and that is a very special thing for Joe Biden.
3: Judge, have you ever discussed Special Counsel Mueller or his investigation with anyone? She
2: also became known you know, more recently in the Kavanaugh hearings.
3: Well, it's uh, in the news every day. I- Have you discussed it with anyone?
2: Where she was very pointedly interrogating Brett Kavanaugh as he was seeking to go to the Supreme Court. Uh, With other judges, I know. Uh...
3: Have you discussed Mueller or his investigation with anyone at Kasowitz, Benson & Torres, the law firm founded by Mark Kasowitz, President Trump's personal lawyer? Uh... Be sure about your answer, sir
2: that was such a a critical moment, and I've sort of been thinking about that a lot in the last few days.
3: Uh, Well,
2: I'm not remembering, but if you have something you want to.
3: Are you certain you've not had a conversation with anyone at that law firm?
0: It's interesting to see how those instances of speaking up and getting that sort of national recognition factored into Joe Biden's consideration and selection of her as his running mate. And I'm wondering what some of the other considerations were as, you know, the Biden campaign was deliberating on on what to do and who to choose.
2: The way that the Biden campaign will, will put it and the way that Biden puts it himself is that he was looking for a person he was simpatico with and had a sort of shared set of values. So that's a significant factor. They had a comfort level with each other. But, you know, aside from that, The fact that she is a black woman is particularly important in this moment over the past few months, ever since March, when Biden said that he would select a woman as a running mate, there has been a campaign that has only grown in intensity for him to select a black woman. You really saw that intensity grow as we had this just series of devastating events through the spring. And it really started with Ahmaud Arbery when the tape of his brutal killing at the hands of white men surfaced, and then going to Breonna Taylor, um, her death by police, and then, of course, George Floyd. This racial reckoning spilled out into the streets, And it really impacted the presidential race and the the dynamic of who Biden would select as a running mate. You saw Amy Klobuchar pulling herself out of the race because of that. And it also just gave so much more energy to this effort that Black women are the backbone of the Democratic Party. And there were a lot of groups who were quite skeptical of her during the primary Um, civil rights groups, some of the black leaders who were, were very skeptical of her. You know, these are particularly liberal groups, did not like her past as a prosecutor. And so they had a lot of skepticism of her background and what kind of president she would be. But that really dissipated. You know, there was definitely a shift after Biden clinched the nomination and I did talk to some activists about that yesterday and they said part of it is she changed that she'd in the last few months, you know, she's tried to reach out more overtly to some of these activists who had not been as supportive of her and they got to know her better. She got to know them better. Um, So there was a little bit of a wooing effort there. Um, Now, he did vet a number of black women. I mean, you had Val Demings, you had Susan Rice, you had Karen Bass. So he did, in this process, spotlight a lot of black female leaders in the country. So it's not just that she is a black woman. There were plenty of other black women that he was considering who were also, like, Harris, highly, highly qualified. So that's where you get back into there is a personal connection with her relationship with Beau Biden, you know, his eldest son who died of breast cancer.
0: And then on the other end, we have moments like during debates during the primary where Senator Harris and Vice President Biden were going head to head and, and Senator Harris did not hold back, especially when it came to Vice President Biden.
2: During the primary, certainly things became heated between the two of them. I mean, Harris and Biden were in a cluster of top candidates. And so, you know, they were trying to beat each other, you know.
3: And I'm gonna now direct this at Vice President Biden.
2: And during the first debate.
3: Um, I do not believe you are a racist.
2: Harris took on Biden know, over his past history on busing. He had opposed busing black children into white schools previously in his in his political career.
3: You also worked with them to oppose busing.
2: And Harris said to him, very memorably that she was one of the young black girls who was bussed.
3: And, you know, there was a little girl in California who was part of the second class to integrate her public schools. And she was bussed to school every day. And that little girl was me.
2: That moment caused just a lot of a lot of friction between the two of them and and between the two of their camps, you know there was just a sense that she had really sort of gone to the jugular and and had not honored this relationship with Bo Biden. Now, it is a primary and it is something that Biden clearly overlooked, but it it came up during the vice presidential vetting process because news leaked that Chris Dodd, who was on the vetting committee, had asked her about this moment and that she had not shown any remorse, seemed to be too ambitious. Um, These comments came out and there was a bit of a backlash against them, this sort of sense of, well, why should she show remorse? She was doing what politicians do. She was doing what competitors do, um, which is go after each other's records. Um, And then, of course, the notion of her being too ambitious seemed to be a bright flashing signal of sexism. But I will say the flip side of that is the fact that Kamala Harris went through a year-long, very difficult presidential campaign, does give the Biden camp a sense that she has been vetted. Um, There aren't going to be big stories that come out of the woodwork, they believe. And that's not the case for some of the other women who Biden was considering. So even though that moment of tension on the debate stage is something that caused pause, in the end, the fact that they were campaigning against each other, I think, was ultimately quite helpful because it means she went through a vetting process that
0: the others had not. Let's talk a little bit about the strategic part of all of this. So, is the thinking here that picking Senator Harris will encourage voters to support the Democratic ticket?
2: Yeah, there's you know politics at play, of course. One of the key sort of facts that Biden's campaign points to is um, when they talk about why Hillary Clinton lost in 2016 was a depression in black turnout from the. 2012 Obama levels. So what they all will often do, Biden's campaign, this is comes up a lot. They will point to Wayne County in Michigan. This is the county that Detroit is in. And they will say, if there's 1% higher Black turnout in Wayne County, one single county, Hillary Clinton would have won Michigan. They are hoping, you know, that somebody like Kamala Harris will help excite that extra one percent in places like Wayne County that can help, you know, tip the balance. I mean, increasing black turnout is a critical part of the Democratic strategy, and it's a critical part of the Democratic coalition. And if, you know, Joe Biden hopes to get to the White House, he's going to need to win places like Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania. And we often think about those places as being kind of Bastions of white working class voters, but there are significant black communities in those places, and the hope is that Harris on the ticket will will just help excite those communities more so that they will vote even in slightly higher numbers and Another dynamic that I noticed a lot of leaders started to talk about is this civil rights history where America has seen these moments of great progress that are you know almost immediately paired up with moments of retreat where Gains seem to get lost. And I think that a major argument that came forward for for picking Kamala Harris was the idea that this could lock in some of the gains that all of these people who are protesting in the streets, who are kind of newly realizing pain and the violence that black Americans face in sort of daily life, that this idea that Kamala Harris could be the first female and black vice president of the United States would help lock that in. And that sense has been growing. I think that this move by Biden helps say, I'm. I hear you. I'm listening to you. And, you know, let's do this together.
0: Annie Linsky is a national politics reporter for The Post. So what's going on with college football?
5: You know, it's splintered into so many different groups. The uh, Power Five conferences are having a major difference of opinion over what's safe and what's not. The Big Ten and the Pac-12 have decided it's not safe to play, not feasible to play, even a limited season this fall. Three other conferences have decided they're going to go ahead and try it.
0: Sally Jenkins is a sports columnist for The Post. She says that this college football season will be unlike any other. Okay, so this doesn't mean that there's no college football at all.
5: No, this is a postponement of two of the conferences, the Big Ten and the Pac-12, have postponed until January. They appear to think that it's just safer to see what happens as campuses reopen and get a better grip on, you know, community transmission on their campuses and that sort of thing. The ACC, the Big 12 and the Southeastern Conference, as of now, say they're going ahead with limited schedules in the fall But I really wonder if there aren't some more shoes to drop here. Everything's very much up in the air.
0: As a Texan, obviously, college football is a really big deal. And it's really hard to imagine the fall without football, especially because down here, so many towns, you know, are are almost, they revolve around the university football team. So I'm wondering how big a deal this really is.
5: Well, it's a huge deal because it's a 150-year ritual that uh, even World War II, Uh, you know, about 60 some schools did not play college football during 1941 and 1942, but a lot of other schools did. And, you know, we may have one conference or two conferences, possibly three that go forward with, you know, a 10 game schedule, but it's really not going to be a normal college football season under any circumstances. It's a huge interruption, you know, a, a really joyful ritual and nobody is happy about that. But I do think that the conferences that decided to postpone are doing the wiser thing and may pay a lighter price as a result.
0: And I'm sure it's not lost on both athletic departments and universities and players that the president called into a sports show and called the postponement. I think football's making a tragic mistake. A tragic mistake
5: you know i don't really think they're paying much attention to that i think that the presidents of these universities are paying much more attention to their high dollar donors the the string pullers here are you know aren't particularly coming from the white house those sorts of people the president and, and people around him may affect the opinions of donors to universities But the university presidents are talking to their sugar daddies, for lack of a better term, the guys or the women who write really, really, really big checks and put their names on buildings on campus. Those are the people that the presidents are listening to, the guys who write the checks.
0: And for the conferences that say they are going to play, how are they reassuring students that it's safe?
5: Well, I'm not sure the students are all that reassured that it's safe. Students have been pleading uh, for universal protocols here. The NCAA has has allowed it to be very, very fragmented and left it to conferences, and conferences have even left it to schools. And so players are frustrated that there are no uh, real guidelines.
0: We also have a recording of a private meeting with SEC leaders, where, where football players push back against playing this fall, and they all seem acutely aware of what's at stake and the potential impact on their lives. With all the uncertainties, like we don't know what COVID actually does
1: to the body, like the lasting effects, and all the kind of the unknowns that we still have on this call, would y'all let y'all have kids, if we were your kids, would y'all let us play in the same, the same football season with the same protocols? and uncertainty that y'all have, that we all have as a collective.
0: Specifically, we hear from Keith McGee, a Texas A&M linebacker who had a lot to say, especially about how this affects their health as players.
1: You guys have answered a lot of questions the best way that you guys could, and we really appreciate it. But it's just like, much as you guys don't know, like it's just, it's holding you guys to to that standard. is just kind of not good enough.
5: You know, if you play for an NFL team, the NFL is very clear on what they want their teams doing. Uh, if you play for a college team, their standards are all over the place. And let me just say that the NCAA schools and the Power 5 schools' histories of dealing with health issues, the track record is not good. If you look at concussions, if you look at hate stroke fatalities, the NCAA has lost, I think, about something like 27 kids have died in summer conditioning workouts because of the ignorance of, of the trainers on their campuses. And so it's, that's not a really reassuring picture. I don't know that you want to leave coronavirus uh, calls to people in athletic departments. Uh, there's no, really no independent medical care uh, on a lot of campuses. On, on some campuses, there is. And on some campuses, there isn't. So it's it's a real mixed bag,
0: which begs the question: What's going to happen to these kids? Because because they are still kids, especially the ones on athletic scholarships.
5: There are so many unknowns, and the players probably have more unknowns than anyone in this equation. The coaches know they're going to get paid; they have contracts. Uh, the college presidents know they will get paid; they have jobs. Uh, The conference commissioners have million dollar salaries. The people who don't really know what's going to happen to them by this time next year are the students. You know, Uh, they have more uncertainty here than anybody.
0: Right. Because unlike the professional leagues, you know, college athletes don't have a union. They aren't paid. There's no guarantee of anything.
5: You know, they're trying to organize, uh, but it's difficult. They're, they're really in a difficult position, the players, and there's nobody really looking out for their best interest. Everyone has an agenda here. They are the labor. Uh, they are the content providers of this whole deal. Literally the most powerless entities in this entire equation. Everyone wants them to play. Nobody wants to give them anything for playing, except for a scholarship that has a very, very tenuous connection to the rest of campus. I mean, the the hourly demands on them are unlike those of any other student. They do get scholarships. They do get room and board. They do get uh, the cost of tuition. But boy, do they work hard for that. And the recompense actually is very, very unfair compared to the hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue that they drive.
0: As you've said, all of this Boils down to money, and it's something that everyone involved can no longer ignore or decide that it's an aside to the ritual and cultural investment of football. And I'm wondering how expensive this really is for the teams that have decided to suspend the season.
5: Well, just to give you one example, the University of Wisconsin has projected they could suffer as much as a hundred million dollar shortfall by not playing uh, this football season. Uh, The coach at Clemson University, Dabo Swinney, makes $9 million a year. The commissioner of the PAC-12 conference makes $5 million a year. Um, You know, the stakes are very, very high. And it's difficult when those are the stakes for the people in those positions to make decisions that are based purely on health and safety of the players. You know, they want those players playing. I actually think it's incredibly commendable that the Big Ten and the Pac-12 made the decision they made, given the stakes. And the only reason I can think that they did make it is because they have information about the potential health toll on these players that is so dangerous, they took a step back.
0: Do you think this is going to change college sports long term?
5: Absolutely. I, don't, I, I think that uh, there's no question that uh, athletic departments are going to contract they have to for financial reasons. They they don't have the revenue from. Uh, they've now lost an NCAA basketball tournament and in the Big Ten and the Pac-12 uh, a football season with potential for bowl money. We're talking hundreds of millions of dollars, and um, it's unsustainable. Uh, it always was. Uh, it only took one. You know, if you looked at Ohio State's ledger, I mean, they ran a ten million dollar deficit this past year, uh, despite huge revenues coming in. And uh, it, 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 you, you look at their books and you go, well, well, didn't you know that something could happen that would really put you behind the eight ball? And I think they just thought that it would last forever and that, that nothing could really alter the, the waterfall of money. And now here we are. You know, I think you probably won't see some sports surviving on campuses. I think you'll see some sports becoming club sports again. And, you know, that's probably as it should be. You know, um, there's been a lot of corporate welfare. That's going away. Uh, There's going to be a lot of belt tightening. There's going to be layoffs. uh, And there's going to be dropped sports. No question about it.
0: Sally Jenkins is a sports columnist for The Post. And now, one more thing. An update from Beirut, where last week, 2,750 tons of ammonium nitrate exploded, killing at least 171 people and injuring
4: thousands. Now in the middle of a crater-like hole, under a lot of uh, twisted uh, uh, car metal, a bunch of civil defense, both French and uh, Lebanese, are uh, looking for what could be a body after French dogs sniffed out a smell. The men in hard hats and uniforms just uh, try to pull away whatever they can from the wreckage in order to find one of the many missing still. But there is no hope that anyone will be alive. This is Sarah Dadush. I'm a Washington Post correspondent uh, based in Beirut. Um, I'm standing in the middle of absolute wreckage There's mounds of dirt and sea sand everywhere. There's a cookbook that lies in the rubble. Spaghetti squash with clam and mushroom sauce. Personal items like calendars, popsicles, someone's uh, red nylon shorts.
0: When the blast ripped through the streets of Beirut, people caught it on video, and one of the videos that went viral was from a bridal shoot.
1: Like any other girl who prepared to her wedding and she's feeling happy, wearing the white dress, her prince is waiting for her, her family are happy for her and everything. When when we hear the explosion and the pressure, when we felt the pressure of the explosion, one thing came into my mind, which is Israel, now you are going to die. You are going to lose your life, your husband. You're going to lose the dreams that you both talked about you you, you want to share it together. Like building a family, having kids, travel a specific country. Now you are losing all this. My dreams or uh, the thing we wanted to do together were flying as the chateau class was flying at that moment. I asked God for one thing, if I can have a moment or a second to hold my parents' hand and tell them goodbye. So this is Isra Siblani, 29 years old. I'm a U.S. resident and I came to Lebanon to see my husband and to get married. We have been postponing this, this day for three years now, just because we were waiting for uh, my husband's immigrant visa. When I applied to him, they told me it's, it's going to take like one year and a half or maximum two years. And now it's almost three years on something. So we decided we shouldn't shouldn't wait for more or longer than this. Let's start our life.
0: What we don't see in the video is what happened next. The bride, Dr. Isra Sablani, started tending to the wounded in her wedding dress.
1: I just saw my husband running toward me, telling me, let's go to a safe place. Let's hide ourselves. And when we went inside the restaurant, I was looking around me, people who were dining in, people who were shopping, and as the life was normal before the explosion, Now everyone is yelling, shouting, crying, and bleeding. So I started to help some people who got injured, telling them to relax. We are all good. We are still alive. And we will be fine. I couldn't think about myself anymore. I felt like I'm here to do my job. Or we are here to do what you have been dreaming about to do. Like, I chose to be a doctor. Just for one thing, to help people. So I found this is a way I can help people. I can be with them. uh, I can see their smile. uh, I can hear their prayer for me after helping them. So at that moment, I I was looking like, Israel, your job start here. You, You should go for it. And then I think about myself, like, or my parents, or how we can get out, out of this place, or anything else. Let's help people as much as I can. It's, it's not, the lab coat is white. My dress is white. It's just different. The style is different.
0: <laughs> Izra Sablani is a doctor in Beirut. Sara Dadoush is a Beirut-based correspondent for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. You can learn more about the stories in today's show at PostReports.com and join the conversation online using the hashtag PostReports. I'm Nicole Ellis. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.